Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and right now I am in Los Angeles, California, which is not that far from Corey Shockey, who is joining us from Palo Alto, California. And in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in your nation's capital, we have Mackenzie Eaglin, who is a defense analyst at AEI, and we have Rosa Brooks, who, unknowns to most of you because you can't actually see her, is wearing half of her Washington, D.C. Police Department uniform for reasons she will explain to us she, of course, is also the associate dean at Georgetown Law School. Rosa, why are, you dressed as half, why are you dressed as half a policeman? Um, well, David, now you're probably making people wondering which half. Um, but no, I'm just wearing my police department boots, pants, and T-shirt. And that's because, as some of our listeners know, I'm a reserve police officer in Washington's Metropolitan Police Department, and I have to race out of here as soon as we finish recording our podcast to go to uh, mandatory professional development training where I think we're being taught how to respond to active shooter situations. So uh, as of next week, if an active shooter event occurs during our podcast, I will know exactly how to respond. I, I believe it involves hiding under the table. Now, Mackenzie, I, I'm just asking on your behalf, Rosa, are you, are you armed at the moment? No. As I was explaining to Ian, our producer, they do not appreciate it when you show up armed to the active shooter training because then you might accidentally shoot yourself or one of your colleagues. So I am unarmed. Yes. Yeah, so, Mackenzie, I just want you to feel at ease as we welcome you to your first Deep State Radio podcast. Welcome. That you are probably not in any danger from Rosa. <laughs> or, or we hope from active shooters. They will never find us here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. <laughs> Yet another reason for our location. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Corey, on the other hand, is dangerous at any distance. Uh, thank um, you for that compliment. I mean that in the best possible I mean that in the best possible way. So, you know, as is the case every week when we sort of gather together to discuss the state of the world and of US foreign policy and national security policy in the world, things have changed, they've churned along. Um and one of the big changes came late in the week as the president of the United States made the bold decision to not certify the Iran nuclear deal and to tell the world that unless the Congress of the United States cleans up what he perceives as a mess with the deal, um, that we will just simply drop out of it. Um, and, uh, of course, there are plenty of critics of the deal, um, but even some of them thought perhaps this was not the right way to handle it, 
uh, and they were joined by the other signatories of the deal, including our European allies. Mackenzie, this is your first visit to the podcast. Um, it's an area you know something about. What do you think? What do you think of the move that the president offered up on Friday? So I assume this being the Ministry of Snark, that when you characterized it as bold, you <laughs> were, were... David is never sarcastic. <laughs> because I really see this as uh, an attempt to be seen as doing something highly productive, anti-Obama, but really not doing much of anything at all. He's kicking it to a dysfunctional Congress that really would have trouble selling Girl Scout cookies in front of the grocery store. So you know, <laughs> that's problem one. And problem two is... That, you know, this just creates another sort of a fiscal cliff, but in this case, a policy cliff where what are we going to do three months from now? Because Congress is not going to be able to act on this. And even if they did and created some parallel legislation, it's binding upon no one, <laughs> none of the other parties to the agreement. So this is just more churn in Washington. Well, I think that's a pretty good summation, Corey. How do you, how do you feel, you know, if you're sitting in Tehran, you know, you're Ruani or, or or somebody, and you're looking at this, or Zarif. I mean, they've responded, but I'm I'm interested. What do you think they're thinking beneath the surface? Do you think they're thinking, oh great, this plays into our hands, or oh my God, this guy's a nut, or this is really a lot of sound and fury signifying or nothing? All of the above. Uh, so, funnily enough, courtesy of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, I, several weeks ago, got to have a conversation with Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif, in which he gave a reply to this question, uh, which was uh, to, uh, to claim that the United States was violating the deal and that Iran wouldn't be bound by it if the United States wasn't bound by it, all of which I took to be very artful diplomacy because it is so much in Iran's interest for their government to continue to abide by the deal irrespective of what the United States does. Because if you believe the argument that the reason that the Iranians came to the negotiating table is that they wanted economic sanctions lifted on them, uh, Europeans were the real lever of economic strain on the Iranians and the Europeans aren't going to reimpose sanctions just because we fail to to meet a domestic American requirement for certification of the agreement. So, so yeah, this is a big victory for the Iranians, especially since President Trump is quite right that the Obama administration ought not to have given Iran a pass on all of its other malevolent behavior undercutting regional governments, support for terrorism, harassing shipping in international waters, support to Hamas and Hezbollah, all of the bad things that Iran is doing that President Trump rightly wants to push back on. It is easier to do all of those things if we keep the Iran deal in place. And, and President Trump sped past that stop sign. I think Mackenzie's exactly right. The president said, but wait, I campaigned against this. I need to do it. And everybody in his administration, I, I think whatever they believed about the deal, whether the deal should be signed, believed our interests were advanced by keeping it in place, if for no other reason 
been to freeze the known Iranian nuclear weapons program for eight or ten years while we shove back with conventional forces on Iran's other bad behavior. Yay, Iran! Great day for Iran. Things are going really well for the Iranians. They get everything that they want here, Rosa. They get, um, you know, uh, the deal that they, you know, negotiated, the support of the Europeans, a division among their enemies. Uh, also, the hardliners in Iran get America behaving just as they always said America behaved. Uh, this sounds like terrific news for them. But what about, you know, for the rest of the world and the message it sends? And a second, I want to get to North Korea, but Corey touched upon a point. Every senior national security figure in this administration uh, who has any credibility at all opposed the move the president took, and he took it anyway. Um, so what does that say to the rest of the world generally, and specifically what does it say to them about the idea that there are these grown-ups around the president and they'll actually make a difference? Well, I don't think that this says something to the rest of the world that they didn't already know. Um, you know, it's it's more of the same. Uh, as Mackenzie and Corey have said, on some level, this doesn't really amount to much, right? Uh, because Trump says, we're not going to certify but then nothing's really going to happen. And then and, and one of the things that the so-called grown-ups do immediately after Trump's comments is they do what they always do, which is they all run around saying things that kind of sort of contradict what the president just said. You know, they start saying things like, well, we're going to work to improve the agreement. And, well, you know, we certainly don't, you know, we have a possibility maybe we would get out, but we're certainly going to work with it and so forth. And, um, you know, and not committing to any timeline. So, so, so on the one hand, I think the world's takeaway may, may very well be that Trump does what Trump wants to do up to a point. But equally, you could say it's a limited success for the grownups in that Trump, you know, ends up it's, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. He doesn't really blow it up. He just he just makes some noises and then he feels good and he goes and he plays with something else for a while. Uh, which unfortunately could be North Korea, <laughs> or um, you know, and that the grown-ups heave a sigh of relief and they they go back to you know trying to keep him out of trouble on other issues. So so, so there's nothing new here. This is the pattern that we have seen. Uh, I think that you know does it continue uh, to have the same? Does does it does it further? further reinforce a message that I think both our allies and our adversaries have already heard loud and clear, which is that you can't rely on the United States and at the moment. You know, you can't rely on them as a partner. You can't rely on them as an adversary. They're just going to do wacky stuff. Uh, I think it does. And that's obviously not good either for us or for our allies, although perhaps it's good for Iran. Although I suspect that even the Iranians are thinking, oh, God, you know, it'd be nice to <laughs> have somebody a little bit more predictable. Well, you know, unless your job or job warrior plan uh, is enhanced by having somebody unpredictable. Well, certainly he does um, seem so, to have irritated them uh, significantly by referring to the Persian Gulf as the Arabian Gulf, which appears to be uniting Iranian popular opinion against him as a big idiot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a really big issue. You know, British Petroleum used to have two conference rooms. Um, one which had a map showing the Arabian Gulf and one which had a map showing the Persian Gulf. And depending on who their visitors were, they would go into the one room or into the other room. Wouldn't it have been cheaper uh, for them to just change the map? Yeah, well, 
you know, these were the olden days, I think. Uh, but, you know, Mackenzie, um, Nikki Haley, um, sub- potentially the next Secretary of State, although you never know. There was a there's a new rumor that, you know, when Tillerson goes, and for sure Tillerson will go, Pompeo will replace him. And then what we would get, and any of you can comment on this in a minute, according to Axios or one of these uh, rumor mills, is Tom Cotton as CIA director, which is like fantastic tinfoil hats for everybody. But we'll come back to that. Nikki Haley said that the North Koreans uh, are getting exactly the right message from this, which left me scratching my head. What exactly message do you think the North Koreans are getting from this? I I defer to the ambassador herself, but it seems that they be, this administration believes that the tough talk is helpful to making them more believable somehow in the eyes of these regimes, which they are trying to change their behaviors. Uh, of course, I think the consensus is that most of us think it's the opposite, uh, but only... The real world will will prove us right or wrong. We hope to all be proven wrong, right? I mean, that's that's the hope here. Um, but there's no doubt that when the president of the United States is speaking to Iran or speaking to the UN by pulling out of certain things or renegotiating NAFTA or talking about South Korea trade deals, in every one of these instances, he's always has another audience, just like every president, no matter who their what their last name is. It's a global audience and a domestic one at all times. And I'm sure uh, in the White House there's some backslapping that, you know, this is going to work in terms of changing the perception of Kim Jong-un that, no, really, we are tough and serious and look what we're going to do. And we, we change things. We're not just status quo enforcers. Well, yeah. Well, you know, there, there, is, there is a small group of professional backslappers in the White House who include Kellyanne Conway, who would, you know, congratulate the president for incinerating the planet because, you know, it makes things warmer in the wintertime, to Stephen Miller, who apparently jumped into a women's track race when he was in high school to prove that men were superior to women. Um, I mean, there's some real sharp, sharp characters there. I, I, I hate to get distracted by this, but on the other hand, I, I, I can't help but court. <laughs> well, it is. But, well, I mean, he's, you know, definitely a lizard person wearing a human mask. But <laughs> I, well done, David. No, oh. I mean, seriously, he's, I mean, he's like horrific. But, but Corey, you know, I just I want to take a like, like a three minute interlude here betwixt the uh, bits of substance um, over the weekend. You know, Tillerson once again took the opportunity not to deny that he called the president a moron, although he did deny uh, the, the other allegation, which was that the president had castrated him. Pardon me? That's, I need that visual, Dave. Could we not talk about that? Because <laughs> it's yucky. Well, he denied that he was castrated. I know, I but I don't, we all... both, I really just don't want to think about it. Okay. Well, okay. You can talk without thinking. That's what I always do. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. That's that'll be fine. Um, but 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 you know. So we you know Tillerson. You know he's also saying you know I don't hate my life, but he hates his life, right, Corey? I mean, he hates his life. It's just it's like he's just like waiting for New Year's to go home, and and then we get to see whether we get Nikki Haley or Pompeo, and then 
the idea of Tom Cotton playing a role in our national defense is just, I mean, beyond the one he played as a, as a, as a soldier, is just uh, mind-boggling to me. But maybe you're more optimistic about that. You're wearing the tiara of optimism. <laughs> what do you think? I am, as always, happy to be in possession of the tiara of optimism. Um, I, I would feel sorry for Secretary Tillerson because he is so much abused. Were he not remaining in the, that circumstance of his own volition? Uh, and moreover, uh, I don't think he is ineffective in doing his job. I will point out that on Afghanistan, on Syria, on the ISIS fight, and on Europe, the president uh, abused him terribly, but also adopted the positions that the Secretary of State advocated. And so it's not clear to me he is as ineffectual as he is being described. It is clear to me that he is the president's favorite cabinet target for emasculation when the president feels like everybody, you know, all of his cabinet have come to a common sensible position that he does not want to adopt. Uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't appear a brave enough man to try and say those things about the secretary. Secretary of Defense, for example, but he does give full sail to say them about the Secretary of State, whose positions have zero daylight between them and the positions of the Secretary of Defense. So I think my own sense is that um, that that Secretary Tillerson is basically a force for good in the administration uh, because because of the policies he's advocating, and that the president because he's a, a weird, sadistic kind of person, um, makes himself feel better about resigning to sensible policies if he can do so in a way that maximally humiliates the Secretary of State and that the Secretary of State has basically accepted that bargain. Yeah, humiliation really seems to be a giant theme here. There's a story in The New Yorker by Jane Meyer that's just come out about Vice President Pence in which the President of the United States, you know, makes jokes uh, when talking about the, the, the you know, uh, certain gay rights issues by pointing to Pence and saying, well, he wants to have them all hung. Um, <laughs> and, and that's hilarious. <laughs> well, Pence is in the room, you know, and and, and it's like, it's, I don't know, Rosa, do you think this is all going to backfire on him, humiliating everybody who's around him? It is backfiring on him. If, if, if his goal was what a normal person's goal would be, which is to, you know, have your team like and respect you and have your agenda, your substantive agenda move forward, then it, it is backfiring on him already. I, I mean, I think that this is an exceptionally leaky White House. All White Houses are leaky. This one seems to be stunningly leaky. There was a today's lead story in the Washington Post is uh, on uh, what the adult daycare center, as Bob Corker called the White House, looks like on the inside. And people are coming out, you know, people who appear to be very close to the president based on the contents of what they're saying are, are coming out all over the place and talking about how crazy he is and how everybody has to manage him and so forth. So, so no, I mean, 
from that perspective, this doesn't work very well for him. Um, on the other hand, as we've said before, you know, so what else is new? <laughs> I, 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 I am very tired of reading all these articles, which come out on a regular basis, at least once a week. Whatever crazy thing Trump does, somebody then writes an article saying, oh, we've really reached an inflection point here. You know, things are, you know, it's the tipping point. Uh, you know, now it's really going to change and it, it doesn't really change, you know, um, uh, because he can do this forever, apparently. Well, you know, Mackenzie, um, uh, I don't want to jeopardize uh, AEI's 501c3 status, but there is a slight tilt. Um, to the analysis and commentary at AEI that you would think made you and your colleagues there more sympathetic to the Trump administration and certainly gives you contact to people on the inside. Is there any place that's on the national security side that you think is working particularly well? I was the first scholar at AEI to brief the Trump campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot Lucky of never-Trumpers uh, <laughs> on the staff, many of them published regular columnists, lots of uh, libertarians, several Democrats, so we take all kinds at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, I had to actually beg for the, the briefing. Uh, they did not want to meet with us, actually. And <laughs> they so, said, we don't, we don't need information. Thank you, though. <laughs> Uh, well, they knew they knew how many of my colleagues had signed letters and that sort of thing. So um, I think I had to ask three times to get them to accept a briefing and then had a, a series of them. Uh, so it gave me a little bit of insight into the candidate. I did not brief uh, candidate Trump, however, just his staff. But it did give me some insight into their thinking. And in terms of what's working, um, first off, I would say avoiding really bad things, which is really not the greatest answer. But um, I think his instincts and impulses have been restrained, as Rosa has talked about already, uh, in some of the worst cases. So uh, that's helpful. I think it's okay to re-examine re assumptions, uh, the, the sort of fundamentals of foreign policy that us here, the card-carrying establishment, members of the swamp, of which I am, actually, I think Ben Rhodes further classified us as the blob. I am certainly a member of that, and I'm proud of it, as Catholics told me at a meeting once. But, um, you know, it's okay to turn over the rocks and say, you know, is NATO still relevant? Do we, do we, you know, agree with all of the reasons we originally signed up for this and for that, you know, for this treaty ally, for that strategic uh, security agreement over here and that over there? So it's okay to reexamine assumptions and have uh, people in this field do that go through those exercises and to turn a fresh light on it. And occasionally you may want to change course. So that's another thing I think that's going well. Uh, in terms of, you know, I, I'll give Secretary Mattis a lot of credit. I, I don't um, I don't speak with him, but, you know, his leadership of the department, while I think occasionally he wades into the Secretary of State's territory, <laughs> Uh, I think he's doing a decent job uh, with the hand that he's been dealt. That's a weak budget hand and a difficult policy hand. But, um, you know, he gets a high mark and his closeness with the team, you know, so he's regularly uh, dining with the president and with Secretary Tillerson, who's a geographical bachelor, you know, and their closeness does help. I agree with Corey that Secretary Tillerson, if this is the bargain he's signing up for, I actually think he is. It's good to have him in the job because somebody else probably wouldn't have lasted this long under that bargain. And the president, if he, if that's what he needs, he, and it has to be somebody, great to the guy who'll do it. Um, well, 
Corey, this leads us to the kind of core philosophical question that we so often turn to you to resolve. Um, uh, you know, I, when we look at these policies like the JCPOA policy, we also, you know, I mean, I, I, I think we've talked about this. I've, I, I sort of reject the idea when somebody says, oh, Trump has a, a strategy or, or there's a Trump doctrine because that requires coherent thought and there is no coherent thought. And there's even reporting in the paper now that, you know, a lot of what they do at the NSC is placate the president's wacky ideas by sending the NSC staff off to kind of, you know, paper these things and see if his wacky ideas, you know, he, you know, just let the air out of them by, by putting them into the process. But really there are, there are effects and there are patterns to the effects and, Take, let's just take two strands, okay? One strand is he um, says he doesn't want to have anything to do with the JCPOA. He says he doesn't want to have anything to do with NAFTA. Quietly laughed last week, a whole bunch of wrenches were thrown into the works in the NAFTA discussions, and I think there's a pretty good possibility that leaving NAFTA will happen. Uh, I don't know whether, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll return to that. Got out of TPP, got out of the Paris Climate Accords, at least in theory. Got, uh, wants to get out of the, 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 the Korea deal, uh, spoken in, you know, sort of destructive ways about alliances. So got out of all those things. Meanwhile, on the domestic side, um, you know, he, he's trying to appoint a guy now to head the DEA who is a lobbyist for the opioid industry. Uh, he's got a guy at uh, the EPA who doesn't believe that the climate is endangered by anything and um, uh, is anti-conservation. He's got somebody uh, at energy who doesn't believe in technology. He's got somebody at education who doesn't believe in public education. He's got, so David, I you know, people... trend of your argument right well you so there this is there's a pattern here in in all of this you know sort of anti all these international agreements and anti what the u.s government and, and and this gets me to the core question is he a nihilist or is he an anarchist you know is he trying to does he just not believe in anything and and life itself and and nothing has any meaning is he trying to blow up everything i mean his policy seems to be one of negation you know negating the Obama record, negating our international alliances, negating the international system, negating the role of the U.S. government. I'm just wondering, what do you think the philosophical roots of this are, and does that even matter? Okay, so I want to thank you for two wonderful things, David. First, giving me the visual imagery of, of the conversation in which the dude is talking with his friends about whether they're nihilists or not. Right. <laughs> finally, finally, a visual on Deep State Radio that I am super happy to have. Yeah, good, finally. It's taken a long time. The second thing I would like to thank you for is... The sweet naivete with which you think the president has an underlying philosophy uh, guiding his choices rather than uh, a short attention span and erratic behavior at which he lashes out in every direction. I don't, however, agree with your analysis, and I think it's important for us to make a distinction between policies we don't like 
um, and actual threats to the Republic. Um, because, and I mention it because all of us do this too infrequently that we neglect to remind ourselves that, you know, elections have consequences and whatever President Trump's many, many personal and leadership flaws, he is basically governing as he campaigned. And whatever you think of his education policy, his science policy, all these other things, people voted for him to do what he's doing. Um, and I think that means he is not a nihilist. He believes he has an agenda that he rightly believes the American electorate has endorsed and that he is trying to persevere over the objections of the cabinet officials who are eminently more sensible, but none of whom got elected president of this United States as they try and dissuade him for some of the more reckless things he's doing. The last thing I will point out um, is that uh, he is not the first president to have campaigned on nonsense. Uh, I will remind you that not only was President Obama elected in 2008, saying NAFTA needed to be renegotiated, but Hillary Clinton was in the same place in 2016. We, we actually need to, we experts need to have a serious conversation with Americans about the fact that trade is good for the economy. Innovation's what's killing jobs, but it's taking us to a better place as innovation has previously on job creation. It creates a new ecosystem in which jobs are easier and more lucrative, but we're in the midst of the stream and it's really scary for a lot of people. Well, Rosa, once again, the tiara of optimism is a little too tight on Corey, I think. Um, I, you know, obviously have the highest admiration for her, but from listening to this, it sounds like this is all just democracy in action. Uh, even though Trump represents the views of a minority, a shrinking minority in the U.S., and ran by tapping into their anger rather than their reason. Uh, but perhaps you have another view, and I'm in the minority here. Well, I think that there are a lot of angry Americans, and many of them do have some good reasons to feel anger and distress. That that being said, I, I don't read quite as much as Corey does into their votes for him because regrettably the the american voter is is famously woefully ignorant much of the time including ignorant about the the policies uh character and past records of the people they vote for um you know that that i it's funny <laughs> i i grew up uh i grew up in new york and donald trump from the time i can remember first hearing him was like a, he was a joke he was a crazy buffoon and he acted badly and everyone giggled because he was just this tabloid crazy guy. And I don't think that the rest of America did quite realize that. I think they are discovering that now that he has been in office for for eight months or whatever, 10 months, whatever it is now. Um, so so I it, it is amazing to me and, and I think this is true across the board. It's not just about Donald Trump, but it is amazing to me how little many of the people who voted for Trump 
knew about him when they voted for him, that they had heard some sound bites, and some of those sound bites were very appealing to them, you know. And, and, and part of the, what was attractive about Trump, obviously, to many white working class voters was he voicing that sense of, yeah, you've gotten screwed. Uh, you know, the, the jobs have gone somewhere else. And now look at you. You know, you're living in this community where you don't have any opportunities anymore and the elites don't really care about you. And there is truth to that. You know, there's truth to that critique and there's and there are uh, truth to the country that I'm not quite as uh happy about uh, the effects of global trade as Corey. You know, I think there are good reasons to say that didn't really work that well for a lot of Americans. That doesn't mean scrap it all to me, but but certainly the sense of, hey, you forgot about us guys when you were negotiating these great international trade treaties. You know, I think pe- people responded to that, but they weren't looking at Donald Trump in the fullness of his personality and past. They were just looking at those sound bites and they voted for him. And one of the things that more recent polls suggest is that some of them are indeed coming to regret it because they, you know, the, the Trump on display in, since he took office, uh, which is completely consistent with the Trump that was on display for the past 30 years that they didn't see. And now a lot of those voters are, are experiencing voters' remorse. Uh, even leaving aside the fact that that as Donald Trump really hates to be reminded, Hillary Clinton <laughs> did win more popular votes than Donald Trump. So I, you know, are people getting? Did it? Should Trump be able to kind of say, "Hey, look, people voted for me, and I'm giving them what they wanted"? It's not really that clear. I mean, I think for a small group of people, yes, but it's a shrinking group of people, and a lot of voters are now scratching their heads and saying, "Ooh, hmm." You know, I didn't like my choices. I still think they were bad choices, but I'm not sure I made the right one. Well, I'm, you know, I feel, uh, generally speaking, my position in podcasts is I go in with a strong view, and Corey says something to persuade me otherwise, or Rosa does, and then I end up the podcast with a somewhat different view. Um, I still see this pattern here regardless of whether it's a manifestation of democracy or manifestation of, of, of some impulse towards nihilism on the part of somebody around Trump uh, or an instinct on him. And I'm just wondering, Mackenzie, you know, is it at the point where you know, we, we can um, extrapolate it out and sort of say, well, this is this is this is where this administration is heading. You know, the more they're able to do, the more they will eliminate functions of the government without creating new ones and eliminate international ties. And what we're actually doing is kind of creating a void where the government used to be. We we could, I you know, I I see this slightly differently, which is that. The bureaucracy and all of its skilled professionals will soldier on in the absence of either as somebody, a political appointee in the position or clear guidance from the White House, in which many cases they don't get uh, or it's, you know, it's forthcoming at some unknown point. And there's plenty of work to be done uh, just doing the business of governing. Uh, And so that's the good news. I get you could see the flip side of that where that's a bad thing because it's such a large organization, largest in the world, actually. But uh, nonetheless, it's in this case, it's a good thing. <laughs> and in terms of, you know, productivity, you know, I, I don't want to come up, I, I don't want to make the hashtag winning joke, but, uh, you know, it does evoke. Uh, oh, do it, do it. <laughs> it does evoke scenes 
from uh, Charlie. What's his name? But anyway, um, you know, so far, I would say Washington is devoid of a lot of successes in the first nine months of the administration. It's not exclusive to the White House Congress, too. Uh, Although I've met with leadership of the House and they are quick to tell me all of how wrong I am in that in that assessment and list the many things that they are, are busy working on. But, of course, I point to the things they've worked together on with the Senate that are signed into law of consequence. If you go back not just to the Obama administration, but even the George W. Bush administration and all of the, you know, the major legislation, you know, no child left behind, whatever you think of it, it was done in the first six months of the George W. Bush administration. You know, there were big H.R. 1, 2s and 3s, and they had things on the shelf that they could pull off and pass that they had been doing the work on. Even uh, President Reagan's tax reform, it didn't, it was huge and it was a behemoth, but it the chairman of the committees of jurisdiction had been working on that for years prior to that. And it just shows that this Congress was unprepared for leadership. And uh, that that's also, you know, now obvious, I guess you could say, to most people, even outside of Washington. So looking forward, they will either course correct dramatically because of this lack of um, serious uh, victories, policy, spending or otherwise, or we will see this continue for three more years. I doubt we'll see a middle road. Okay, so Corey, let me go back to you for the final word in this particular episode. And in order to uh, go you know, back into your good graces, I'd like to dredge up a term from the early history of the United States, which was once a subject of some debate and is not really much anymore. And the term is nullification, which is the idea that a state didn't have to enforce federal laws um, within its limits, uh, theoretically, uh, you know, empowered to do so by the Constitution, which suggests that there, this, this right exists. And I just, I, you know, I wonder if we're not sort of seeing something new, which is, you know, sort of presidential nullification of a lot of the role of government and so forth. You can't get anything through the Congress. So with executive orders and failure to enforce and so on and so forth, you just nullify. Um, and, you know, setting aside this whole issue of democracy, because, you know, the leaders of the Confederacy were also elected by, 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 by their constituents. Do, do, do you think this is a, you know, that there is something to this, that this, this kind of self-destruction from within the government is, is uh, is 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 something real, or is it just something perceived in the minds of the paranoid like me? So, David, I'm so glad you brought up the nullification crisis, so I can give some sail to the fact that even as much of a populist, not just a slave owner, a slave trafficker, President Andrew Jackson rejected nullification as as a way to manage the frictions in our diverse society. So no, I don't think nullification ought to be a course of action. And not only the courts, but the force of federal government arms, I think, solved that question some time ago. Uh, but I do think that in a federal system, States have a whole lot of latitude to prevent the president from being able to accomplish in a timely way anything he wants to accomplish. And I will just point out that my own native land, the great state of California, passed a law uh, 
in which uh, prohibits states and localities from providing information to the federal government to create a Muslim registry. Uh, because the great state of California contends that's unconstitutional. And I would defer to Rosa as always, but that seems to me a pretty obvious legal point, uh, constitutional point, excuse me. Uh, so, right, what the states can do is dramatically slow down and force, uh, force scrutiny on the president's policies if they are in violation. The other thing, though, that I would say about this is that, as you know, I have for some time uh, thought there's a pretty good chance that Donald Trump is going to end up to be good for American democracy, because as much as I wish our republic was not being put to this test, it does seem to me that we're passing it. Institutions are functioning properly. The president is permitting himself to be constrained by the courts and by the actions of Congress that... Uh, the antibodies of an active citizenry and of civil society and of, uh, you know, tiresome investigative journalists, all those things look to me to be working. Uh, that said, Donald Trump is proving that the imperial presidency has no clothes, right? <laughs> because for all of the ways in which we worried about executive power, Donald Trump doesn't appear to know how to get anything done. He can't seem to work with his own party in Congress or the opposition. He can't seem to connect the levers of anything to the gears of anything else. And so I do think we have an important political question before us, which is, does this mean states will move back into much more active roles on a lot of these issues? The great state of California has an independent climate policy. It has an, right, on all sorts of things, the states can take initiative independent of the federal government. And whether that means that President Trump's supporters will be enthusiastic about government that they have more ability to control than they do the federal government or whether they will be exasperated and driven to greater extremes. Because as you, as you point out, David, right, like a lot of these, a lot of people's frustrations that I think we saw result in their support for President Trump as somebody who speaks for them when others won't and is worried about their problems when others weren't. Uh, I, I think it's an open question whether we have, are anywhere near winning the argument with our fellow Americans. Well, I think this is an interesting subject which doesn't get discussed quite enough, and that is how in the current situation we're seeing um, the role of the president change, how that's producing roles, changing roles in the Congress, how that's producing changing roles in the states, and where that may all lead. I personally was thinking that what we're seeing is the, the executive branch sort of shutting things down and nullifying things it didn't like in the government uh, unilaterally. But interestingly, one of the responses to that, as was the case in, uh, with, with recent decisions on health care, has been a bunch of states saying, well, we're going to sue or we're going to take a different path or we're not going to enforce this. And Corey's brought up some other possibilities. And Lord knows this could get more complicated as, for example, it seems to be uh, uh, one of the strategies of Robert Mueller to get perhaps state 
uh, attorneys general to uh, pursue cases against the president so he doesn't have pardon power, and that could raise new kinds of tensions also. Well, that's all stuff ahead of us. Uh, I just didn't want anybody out there in deep state radio land to think that we were only looking at the nuances of uh, the threats that exist overseas, because obviously so many more threats exist at home. Uh, that's why we're here to discuss those. We hope you will join us again uh, for the next such discussion in just a couple of days uh, uh, here at um, Deep State Radio. Thank you, Rosa. Uh, thank you, Mackenzie. Thank you, Corey. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of days. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.